take your Bibles, open them with me to uh, Mark's Gospel again, Mark chapter 9. This morning will be in verses 30 through 50, Mark 9, 30 through 50. If you're using one of the black hardback Bibles under a chair in front of you, you'll find Mark 9, verse 30, on page 794. And verse 30 is like right at the, it's the first word on the page of 794, so it should be fairly easy to find. If you don't own a copy uh, of the Bible, uh, feel free to take one of those uh, hardback Bibles with you. It's our gift to you, and pray that you'll use it, and we'll ask uh, God's blessing on you as you read it. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Some of you know, when I was uh, in high school and in college, uh, I, I worked primarily at a candy store, a chocolate store, and my job was, uh, was eventually came to be one of the lead or the lead cook for the stores, making lots of uh, delicious treats, caramel apples, fudge, that sort of thing, and I got really good at it, but my early days in working at the, at the chocolate factory were not so good. Making caramel in large batches, making fudge in 26-pound batches is not an easy task. Uh, the way that we did it, we, we mixed, at least with the fudge, we mixed everything on a big marble table out in front so everybody could watch you do it. It's a little bit of theater. And then we would hand shape uh, these uh, like logs of fudge on this table that we would then slice into half-pound blocks and, and, and sell for a profit. Early on, I was not very good at making fudge. It's, it's, it is a skill. It's also an art. And if you have neither of those things, you can't make good fudge, at least not fudge that your boss wants to sell. And so early on, I was learning how to, how to make stuff. And, and there would be times where I thought I had nailed the process and, and I was just going to kill it on the next batch. Come to find out the next one just looked awful, looked terrible, couldn't sell it, had to throw it away. And I had to be retrained by my boss and by other cooks who had gone before me how to do it. Friends, there's nothing more humbling than having to be retrained on a job that you thought you knew how to do. Whether it's making fudge or writing expense reports uh, or, or, or running an experiment or whatever the case is, there's nothing more humbling than thinking you know what you're doing only to have someone who knows really how to do the job tell you, brother, sister, you're terrible at this. We got to start over. Retraining is hard to go through. It's also hard to do. It's hard to retrain someone who thinks they know uh, everything that they're doing when in fact that they don't. Here in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50, we're going to see an interaction between Jesus and his disciples wherein he confronts their misunderstanding in several different ways in order to demonstrate that the way of the cross is marked by selfless sacrifice. It's marked by the pursuit of unity among believers and the protection of God's holiness among his people. See, the disciples thought they knew what it meant to be a disciple. They, knew what, they thought they knew what discipleship was. And in the passage that we'll look at today, Jesus takes them aside to say, not at all, friends, we got to be retrained on this thing. In this passage where Jesus will predict his death and resurrection for the second time and then confront the disciples on their misunderstanding of what discipleship is, we see, and this is the main idea of our time together in God's Word today, that the way that Jesus goes to the cross shows us that the way of the cross leads his followers to practice these three things, humble service, gracious cooperation, and radical holiness. The way that Jesus goes to the cross shows all who would follow him that we are called to, as we follow him, practice humble service, 
gracious cooperation, and radical holiness. I pray that as many of us as follow Jesus in this place today, follow in the way of the cross, the one that Jesus walked, and the way in which He commands that we too walk if we are to follow Him. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading His Word, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Last week we saw Jesus cast a demon out of a boy, which the disciples failed to do, telling the disciples later that that kind can only be driven out by prayer. And in verse 30, Mark, the gospel writer, continues saying that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with no eye with one eye, then with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you, be, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's Word. You may be seated. And the way to the cross shows us that the way of the, that the, way of the cross, the, excuse me, let's try that again. The way that Jesus goes to the cross shows us that the way of the cross, the way of discipleship, leads Jesus' followers to practice humble service, gracious cooperation, and radical holiness. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. We saw the first instance after Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And right after that, Jesus began to teach that he would be betrayed and killed and then rise on the third day. This idea that the glorious Son of Man prophesied from that Old Testament prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. The the idea that the glorious Son of Man would be the same person as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was impossible to Peter. And so he began in Mark chapter 8 to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, that can't be so. You can't die. Jesus turned and rebuffed Peter, calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus began to teach them that the way to glory is through sacrifice and death. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Then later, uh, after the passage that we're in today, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus will for a third time predict his death and resurrection again. And there, two disciples will make a ridiculous request of Jesus to give them special status. And he there tells them that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and that whoever would be great among them must first become a servant of all. Now here in Mark 9, verses 30 to 32, we have the second of those predictions of Christ's death and resurrection. And a similar response to the disciples about what following him means and what following Jesus looks like for them and for all else who would follow him. It's interesting to note that Jesus tells them about his impending death and resurrection on the road back to Capernaum from someplace further north where the healing of that demon-possessed boy took place. He teaches them privately, Mark says, away from the crowds, desiring to have the disciples' full attention and to be away from the distraction that these many people who often follow Jesus would bring. And even as plainly as he says to them again, the glorious Son of Man from Daniel 7 is the suffering servant of Isaiah 55 and the stricken shepherd of Zechariah 13, as plainly as Jesus says, the Son of Man must be killed and after he's killed on the third day rise, the disciples, we find, are still slow to understand and afraid to ask Jesus about it. But this being the second time that they've misunderstood, and and maybe the disciples having the stinging rebuke of Peter still echoing in their minds from before, they're afraid to say anything to Jesus about what he just said. Last time one of us spoke up, Jesus called him Satan. It's best for us to just keep our mouths shut. But when they get to Capernaum, which is Peter and Andrew's hometown, and they return to the house that they stayed in there, probably Peter's home, Jesus begins his interrogation of the disciples, asking what they were talking about along the way back to Capernaum, along the road through Galilee. And his question opens up a discussion through which Jesus will teach at least three important lessons about the way of the cross, about what it means to follow Jesus. First of all, in verses 33 through 37, we see Jesus demonstrating that the way of the cross is humble service. The way of the cross, following Jesus, is humble service. Jesus' question about what the disciples were asking or talking about along the way goes unanswered. Either he supernaturally knew what they were talking about, or better, they weren't as quiet and discreet as they thought they were on the road. But in any case, Jesus knows what they were arguing about, and he asks them so that they'll admit it. They don't admit it, but Jesus gets to the point of it anyway. It's interesting to note that As soon as Jesus teaches about how he is going to die, the Son of Man must be killed and then rise on the third day, they all seem to start talking about who gets to take the reins of the group when he's gone. As soon as Jesus says, I'm going away, they all start fighting about who gets gets to be top dog when he does. Or at least about which of, uh, of them is best among the group or has the greatest status among the group. And so Jesus, knowing what they were talking about, tells them plainly, if any of you wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Status was a big deal in the ancient world. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had religious status. Herod had governmental status. Tax collectors even had a share of status in that day as partners with Rome. The wealthy had financial status. The Roman elite had all kinds of status. It would probably not be wrong to say that everybody who wasn't somebody in Jesus' day wanted to be someone who was somebody. 
And the disciples aren't immune to this longing for status, this longing for glory. Obviously not, because they had just jealously been arguing about who was best among them. Jesus tells them that the way of the cross is not through seeking status, but the way of the cross, following Jesus, is humble service. And then he gives them an object lesson. Children in that day were not often doted on like children are today. If anything, children represented the lowest social class in the ancient world. They had no rights. They had no status. They were expected to be obedient, to work in the family business, and stay out of the way. Some of you parents are longing to live 2,000 years ago. So Jesus finds a child in this home, maybe one of Peter and Andrew's nephews, maybe a, a younger cousin, and he first sets this child in the middle of them, sets him, takes him from the periphery of the room to the center of attention. And then Jesus gets really crazy, and he grabs that little boy up with his, in his arms with all the affection of God himself, and he says, with this child in his arms, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, me, receives not only me, but also the one who sent me. Humble service looks like reaching out and receiving the vulnerable, the invisible, the overlooked, the ones without status, the homeless, the orphan, the widow, the drug addicted, the AIDS victim, the family with a child having special needs, and receiving them as an equal in the love and will and with the gospel of Jesus. This kind of service, this kind of humble service, was not just hard for the disciples to comprehend in their world obsessed with status. It's hard for us to comprehend too because we love to be served. We love to be served. Our economy shows us this every single day. We have people and apps and drive throughs that are all in service to our convenience. Burger King tells you that when you are there, you're the king. You can have your burger your way because you rule. The way of the cross, friends, is not I rule, but Christ rules. It is not serve me, but how can I serve you? And we see in Mark chapter 10, uh, after the second prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, there in Mark 10, Jesus says that he himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many by dying for the sins of all mankind and being raised again. When the king of the universe, the son of God, comes to earth, he does not come to break the backs of men in slavish service to himself. Rather, he comes to be broken for those who are slaves to sin, so that by the service of his death and resurrection, they might be made free from sin. Are you walking in the way of the cross? Do you have a heart that is willing to serve the vulnerable? And not just to serve in ways that get recognized by others, but to serve in ways that people may never see, to serve in ways that you may never be recognized for. At least one helpful diagnostic question to ask as you evaluate your own heart is this, what do I feel, how do I feel about vulnerable and needy people when I see their need? Do I view it as an inconvenience that I'd rather not have seen? Do I look for others to meet the need so that I don't have to? I think we could even read this passage very literally, Jesus interacting with this child and ask, what do I feel or how do I feel about children, my own children and others? Am I generally compassionate and seeking to know them and care for them or do I see children as a nuisance? Friends, I'm not saying that every believer must serve in children's ministry, but I also think that our active willingness to receive children 
in the name and love and gospel of Jesus, as Jesus says we ought to, the way that we do that says a lot about a church's readiness to walk in the way of the cross. Discipleship like this is not just for the paid professionals. Children's ministry is not just for the children's minister. It's also for anyone who would follow Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is humble service, and Jesus demonstrates what humble service looks like in a tangible way by receiving children. In verse 38, maybe out of awkwardness and maybe out of a desire to change the topic, John, the disciple, speaks up to complain about a different issue. (laughs) This is uncomfortable Jesus talking about receiving children. Let's talk about something else, please. (laughs) Let's talk about this, says John, which brings up the next lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples, that the way of the cross is not only humble service, it's also gracious cooperation. Being apparently oblivious to the irony that not but a few miles away and a few days prior, the disciples totally failed in their efforts to exercise a demon from a sick boy, John comes telling Jesus that they have done him a great favor. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, so we told him to stop because he was not following us. That's an interesting word, us. In Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus comes to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee and says to, before they're his disciples, says to them, follow me. And said that the way of discipleship in Mark 8 was to follow him. But John and the others are concerned that these other exorcists aren't following us. Jesus deals quickly with John like he did with Peter before in chapter 8. He gives John a stern command. John says, we saw these guys doing this thing in your name and we stopped them because they weren't following us. And Jesus says, no, John, you stop. You stop trying to shut them down. You stop trying to stop, prevent them from doing what they're doing. And then Jesus outlines for the disciples this principle that if God demonstrates his power through another person who uses the or calls on the name of Christ with faith in the power of Christ's name, that this person will not be able to say anything evil about Christ later, recognizing that it was Christ's power that did this thing. And then Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. Now, this doesn't mean that neutrality about Jesus is the same as saving faith. It's not. Jesus is not giving a a, a third option to people who would rather not believe in Jesus, but don't mind if other people do. He's not saying that to be neutral about himself is is the same as being saved. You must make an active decision for Christ. And, and, And the absence of an active decision to follow Christ, to trust him, is to reject him. Jesus is outlining a different principle here. Remember that Mark, when he's writing this gospel, this biography of Jesus's life, that he's writing after Jesus has already died and been raised and the church has been going on for probably a decade and a half or more, Mark is writing to Christians who are living in a time of strong persecution. Now, if in a culture where everyone is disposed to be against you, if you know that the culture is an enemy to your belief and you happen to find one person who is willing not to persecute you, well, then you found a friend and an ally. Now, like those who hid Jews in their basements and attics away from their Nazi persecutors and the neighbors who just kept mum about who was being hidden in the house next door. So also, Jesus says, a man or a woman who offers a cup of water to a believer in this this persecuted society, this persecuted state, because they belong to Christ, that person is a friend to Christ's kingdom. But what Jesus is teaching here about 
he who is not against us is for us, is not first about those who are outside the group of disciples. Rather, what Jesus is teaching is first about the heart of the disciples. It's John's heart and the heart of the others expressed in trying to stop these people who are exercising demons in the name of Jesus. That's the problem. John is angry that someone from outside the circle of the twelve would, number one, have the audacity to pronounce Jesus' name to help a demon-oppressed soul. And number two, that doing so would actually work. I can't believe these people who don't follow us would use your name, Jesus, and be effective in exercising demons. How dare they? He's not one of us, Jesus. So we made sure that he quit it. Aren't you proud of us? In a way that ought to cut us to the heart, John reveals that what often lies in each of us when we think about other Christian groups who are having success, this kind of pride in the tribe happens between denominations. Why would anyone bother doing missions apart from the Baptists? You're going to that seminary? Don't you know they're Presbyterian? You listen to that preacher? He's Lutheran, you know. Non-denominational churches? What good are they? And to be sure, some say truer and fairer things about Baptists. But all that sort of talk is full of the same sentiment that John expresses here to Mark. Lord, they're not one of us. They need to knock it off. In 1948, Alabama preacher Levi Elder Brown said this. He said, I am more tremendously convinced than ever that the last hope, the fairest hope, the only hope for evangelizing the world on New Testament principles is the Southern Baptist people represented in that convention. I mean no unkindness to anybody else on earth, but if you call that bigotry, then make the most of it. Hear me, friends. I've been a Baptist and a Southern Baptist before I ever knew or cared why. And I remain a Baptist to this day because I believe historically Baptists have understood the Bible, the gospel, and its implications for Christ's church very well. I'm a Southern Baptist because we fund and facilitate world missions and church planting in perhaps the most efficient and faithful way that I've ever known through the cooperative program. But friends, before I'm a Baptist, before I'm a Southern Baptist, I desire to be a follower of Jesus. I want to see the lost saved as they believe in Christ. I want to see the saved discipled and growing as disciples of Jesus. And I want to see disciples of Jesus equipped to take the gospel to more people. The mission of Christ for His church matters most. It matters more than tribal alignments. It it matters more than denominational affiliation. And First Baptist West Albuquerque and the Southern Baptist Convention are not the only members of the church of Christ in this world. The last, fairest, and only hope for evangelizing the world is not Southern Baptists, but the gospel of Christ itself through every believing church who obediently proclaims it, Baptist or otherwise. So here's what I mean. Partisanship, turfiness, competition have no place among those who follow Christ and no place between churches who are following Christ and no place between denominations who are following Christ in faithfulness. The way of the cross is one of gracious cooperation for the sake of the gospel. The way of the cross seeks the growth of Christ's kingdom, whether it comes through our work or any other person's work in the name of Jesus. Why? Because it's not my kingdom. 
It's not First West's kingdom. It's not even the Southern Baptist kingdom that we're pursuing and longing for. It is Christ's kingdom. The way of the cross is not through partisan competition, but gracious cooperation and glad encouragement of those whom God is demonstrating His saving power through. Understand this, that a heart that is following Christ will rejoice in the ministry successes, ministry successes of those who are part of other faithful gospel groups. A heart that is following Jesus will rejoice in the ministry success of those who are a part of other faithful gospel groups. So what should you do then, Christian, to ensure that as a follower of Jesus and a member of this church, or if you're visiting today and a member of another church somewhere else, what should you do to ensure that you're walking in the way of the cross, seeking gracious cooperation, not falling into the trap that John and the other disciples fell into? Well, at the very least, you ought to pray. Pray for the health and success of like-minded churches. Yes, even those of other denominations. Every Sunday, you've probably noticed in my pastoral prayer just before the sermon, I pray on all of our behalf for two churches every week. One church is always from our local Baptist association. We cooperate financially and practically with about 75 or more other churches in the Albuquerque metro area and a little bit beyond to help to plant new churches, to support pastors, to evangelize the lost in this area. There is among this group of Baptist churches, there's no turf or parish assignment for us. Some of them are much bigger than us, and some of them are much smaller than us, but we all have the same Savior and the same mission. Take the gospel to those who need to hear it. So we pray for other Baptist churches that are around us and with whom we cooperate. And I also pray every week for another church that's part of a group of like-minded, but not always and not all, Baptist churches uh, that I as an individual affiliate with. The group is called the Gospel Coalition. It was started a number of years ago uh, by three men, two of whom are Baptist, a third who's Presbyterian, D.A. Carson, John Piper, and Tim Keller, who just passed away in the last year. And they started the Gospel Coalition, three brothers of different denominations, because they're going, the work in, in the world is great, and the gospel is the one thing that binds us all together. We have some different thoughts about some things, but we're of the same mind when it comes to the only way of salvation being by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's work together. Let's work together as much as we can to encourage one another, equip one another to do that work in the world in the way that God has called us to do. There's an Albuquerque chapter of the Gospel Coalition that's hosted by a fellow Baptist church, Desert Springs Church. But we pray every Sunday for a Central Baptist Association Church and for a Gospel Coalition Church who's a part of the Albuquerque chapter. And some of these Gospel Coalition churches are Southern Baptist. Some are part of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Some are Anglican. Some are non-denominational. Some are independent Baptist and others are evangelical free. But we pray for these churches, not because these are church, uh, we do this because these are churches who are committed to the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. They're committed to walking in the way of Jesus and proclaiming the gospel and discipling followers of Jesus. They might have different thoughts than we do about some things, but they're of the same cross-shaped mind as us. And if the kingdom of God grows through their ministry, that is a wonderful thing that we should praise God for. They're not against us, and we're not against them. We are all for Christ, and we are for each other. The way of the cross is gracious cooperation. Christian, will you look for ways to celebrate the successes of other churches? Will you look for ways to celebrate the successes of other ministries? And will you thank God for them? 
This is one evidence that you are demonstrating a desire for gracious cooperation in the gospel and walking in the way of the cross. The way of the cross is humble service. The way of the cross is gracious cooperation. But finally, in verses 42 through 50, Jesus teaches that the way of the cross is radical holiness. The way of the cross is radical holiness. Now, you might be able to say, humble service, I'm on board. Gracious cooperation, absolutely. Radical holiness, let's pump the brakes. Because the way that Jesus teaches about this is really, really stark. Like, it's offensive to some people. The final section of Jesus' teaching on discipleship here is undoubtedly focused on the importance of holiness. His attention returns to the subject of children. Remember, he had just taken a child from the periphery of the room, grabbed the kid in his hands and said, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me and the one who sent me. In verse 37, he picks up again, uh, verse 42, excuse me, picks up again saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. First in this section, Jesus is warning about the danger of impairing or hindering a vulnerable person's holiness. Jesus' words are as few as they are sharp. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, a millstone is a, a large stone that was pulled by a, a donkey or a mule or maybe an ox in a, uh, in, in a, a mill house, and, and they would, these are giant stones would roll over wheat and crush the grains, uh, uh, crack, cause the, the grains of wheat to crack open so that uh, the grain could then be processed and ground into flour. And so huge, massive uh, wheels of stone weighing several hundred pounds. Jesus says it's better to have one of those as a necklace and be thrown overboard in the ocean than to cause a vulnerable person to sin. We ought to take the warning that Jesus gives in verse 42 at face value. God reserves a harsh punishment for those who cause the vulnerable to sin. And at the same time, we can say positively that God is passionate for the protection and holiness of his vulnerable saints. Jesus warns about the danger of impairing a vulnerable person's holiness. But then, secondly, in the verses that follow, Jesus turns the warning against sin to the individual. He turns it, he turns it uh, uh, self-reflectively. Causing a vulnerable person to sin is serious. And fostering sin in one's own life is equally serious. Jesus says if your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to sin, it would be better to remove that part of your body and enter into the kingdom of God lame or blind than to be thrown into hell with all those sources of sin attached to you. Put plainly, Jesus is advocating, calling for, a radical removal of all temptation to sin because the alternative, being hell, is horrid. Now, I want to hear say two things. First, when Jesus says, it'd be better if your eye, hand, foot, eye causes you to sin, cut it off, tear it out. Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's intentionally exaggerating for the purpose of getting the seriousness of his point across. Jesus isn't advocating self-mutilation. If he were to, he'd be going against so much of what else is said in Scripture. He's, he's exaggerating on purpose. But secondly, I want to say that Jesus is not exaggerating the seriousness of sin. Neither is he exaggerating the reality or seriousness of hell. If anything, 
Jesus exaggerates the manner of removing sin, removing causes of sin in one's own life to match the seriousness of the reality of hell. Now that word that in our Bibles is translated hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which comes from a Hebrew word, Gehinnom, which means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was the place uh, in Israel just outside of Jerusalem during the reigns of two Old Testament kings, Ahaz and Manasseh. We read about them in 2 Chronicles 28 and 33, where those two kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, kings of God's people in Israel, led the people of Israel to sacrifice their children by fire to the pagan god Molech there in the valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom, Gehenna. Later on, the reforming king, Josiah, put an end to that practice of child sacrifice and destroyed all of the unholy altars there in that valley. And in Jesus' day, that valley had become an ever-burning trash heap. It was the city dump where refuse and corpses were disposed. And because the trash was burning, every time you add more fuel, the fire just keeps burning. So Gehenna, the valley outside of Israel, was an ever-burning trash heap because trash was ever being added to it. From the days of the Old Testament prophets, Gehenna had become an image for the wrath and judgment of God upon unrepenting sinners. Even from Isaiah's day, as Jesus quotes, him, uh, quotes Isaiah in uh, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Even in Isaiah's day, Gehenna had become this image, this horrid image of the seriousness of encountering God's wrath for unrepentant sin. Friends, hell is real. Jesus preached about hell more than any other person in the Scriptures. This is why I say humble service, yeah, I'm on board, not a problem. Gracious cooperation, yep, no issue there. Radical holiness, I don't know. Jesus says some things that are hard to understand. They're not really that hard to understand, but they are hard to receive. Hell is real. And Jesus, knowing the reality of hell, preached about hell more than any other person in all of the scriptures. His warnings about hell are stark because hell is literally hellish. Hell, friends, is not a place where God is absent. We often think about it that way. But rather, hell is the place where the fullness of God's wrath against all unholiness exists in perfect, full, eternal measure. It is the wrath against sin that is evident in hell that Jesus says, escape by radical means. It is the wrath against sin that Christ ultimately paid for on the cross. But that payment is only applied to those who have trusted Him. So, dear one, hearing this this morning, flee sin, run from sin, and cling to Christ, who has satisfied the wrath of God in your place, who received the wrath of God at the cross in your place so that you might escape hell. Finally, Jesus turns to two images of salt. Salt is a preservative and purifying substance. It was then, it is now. Verse 48 is maybe the most quizzical of all statements in Mark's gospel. Jesus says, uh, excuse me, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. That's a weird statement said weirdly. Some later copies of Mark's gospel included at the end of verse 48 a, a phrase by the manual copyists to try to explain this verse a little bit better. It, it included a phrase that references Leviticus chapter 2, 23 where there God tells His people that every sacrifice is to be salted, to be seasoned with salt as a way of consecrating it before, uh, before being sacrificed. 
Likely what Jesus was referencing here when he says everyone will be salted with fire is that his disciples will be consecrated like sacrifices through the suffering of hardship and persecution for his name. There will be a fire that Jesus' disciples endure. It's not the fires of hell, but it is the fire of persecution and hardship for the name of Jesus. And Jesus is saying it is far better to follow Christ through suffering by radically pursuing holiness than to endure God's wrath in hell. A better, a better a little discomfort today for the sake of holiness than eternal discomfort under God's wrath in hell. The suffering Christian in the Roman world to whom Mark wrote this gospel would have taken much encouragement from these words, knowing that their suffering, their persecution for the name of Jesus was, was resulting in their sanctification, their consecration, their being made pleasing to God, and, and their being conformed to the image of Jesus, their Savior. Second, Jesus says in the last verse of the passage that the disciples are to have salt in themselves and to be at peace. Now, salt was not just a preservative and purifying substance. Salt is also for seasoning. Sharing salt was not an uncommon way to refer to sharing a meal with someone in Jesus' day. It seems that he is saying the same here, that the disciples who follow him, rather than chasing status, rather than chasing power uh, or exercising turfiness, ought to let the salt of the kingdom of God and personal holiness fill their lives and their fellowship and so be at peace with one another. To pursue holiness in a radical way and through pursuing holiness, to also pursue fellowship with all of Christ's followers and to be at peace. The way of the cross is radical holiness. Now looking at all this and applying it to our own lives, we find that a heart that is following Christ will take radical steps to stamp out sin in their life. A heart wanting to follow Jesus will take radical steps to stamp out sin and sources of temptation in our lives. Because sin is the cause of our separation from God, and because Christ died and was raised again to bring forgiveness of sins and restoration to God, the way of discipleship radically roots out sin. In what you do, are you tempting yourself or causing yourself to sin? Do you have life habits and practices that are contrary to God's will in which even your own conscience convicts you? Cut those things out of your life, Jesus says. In where you go, are you caused to sin? Stop going those places. In what you look at, on your phone, your computer, on the street, on TV, are you sinning? My friend, take radical steps to remove those avenues of sin for yourself. Better to go through life with a flip phone than with an iPhone to go into hell where the worm, is not not worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And with faith this morning in Christ's death to pay for those sins, call on Jesus. Because it's not just removing sources of temptation that makes you holy. It is being found in Christ who is Himself the definition of holiness, who gave his life for us. It's being found in him by faith and dependence. That is what God, that, that is the, the basis upon which God declares us holy and the power through whom Jesus' own spirit in us, his Holy Spirit in us, making us holy. And furthermore, friend, don't only remove bad habits of sinfulness, but replace them with new disciplines of godliness. Replace doom scrolling on Twitter with Meditative prayer, time in God's Word. Replace time spent in front of television, cable news, hour on hour on hour with 
time spent in fellowship with other believers around God's Word. Replace that bad habit of chasing sin in the secret of, uh, uh, of your own heart. Replace that with glad confession to other believers who can help you to root that sin out of your life and be conformed more to the pattern of Jesus. Don't just remove, remove bad habits of sinfulness, but replace them with new disciplines of godliness. My friend, you may not be a follower of Jesus today, but He calls you too to walk in the way of the cross. His death is sufficient. It's all you need to pay for your sins. And His resurrection from the dead, which He promised and which He did, is itself a promise that you will be raised to live in His glorious presence and not in the harshness of hell. But you must trust Him. There's no other way. Peter said in Acts chapter 4, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than that of Jesus. There is no salvation through any good works, only through faith in Jesus. You must repent of the sin that deserves hell. You must trust in Jesus as your ransom and substitute, and you must call on Him as Lord, and I pray that you will. Here in a few moments, we'll have a song of response as we respond to God's Word by singing truths of it uh, in praise to God and as reminders to ourselves during that time of singing a response, if you need to make that decision to follow Christ faithfully, to, to follow Him as your Lord, repenting of sin and trusting Him as Savior, uh, I'll be up here at the front. Come and talk with me. Let's, let's start at least a conversation today about how you can have confidence of your salvation through faith in Jesus. It is hard to be retrained to do something that we thought we were doing really well already. Believe me, these words of Jesus in Mark 9, 30 to 50 are working in me today and have been working on me this past week. And I feel in myself the friction between my own selfish desires and my own attempts to justify thoughts or habits that could lead to sin and the way of the cross that Jesus describes here. I feel the tension and friction in myself. But understand that what Jesus calls his followers to in these verses is not self-actualized service but service that is modeled by Jesus, the Son of God who gave Himself to serve sinners, ransoming them from hell. We cooperate with and we pray for the success of those who are working for the gospel, not because God cooperates with us in our salvation. No, God does it all. But because through Christ, God is calling us to cooperate with Him in the work of getting the gospel to lost and dark places of the world. And we pursue radical holiness, not out of self-determination, but out of the enabling power of the sinless Son of God who died to make us holy and who gives us His own Holy Spirit to all who call on Him in faith that they might be sanctified. The way of the cross is not, through, is not to status and to being served and to living life how you want. The way of the cross following Jesus is a call to humble service. It's a call to gracious cooperation with others who are pursuing Jesus in His kingdom. And it is all, uh, uh, finally and, and most certainly a call to radical holiness. Amen. Friends, let's walk in obedience to Jesus today. Will you pray with me?